Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening. You are listening to Radio Islam, and I'm your host, Tariq El Amin. For those of you who are new to Radio Islam, we welcome you. We're a live call in talk show broadcasting from Chicago on WCEV 1450 AM. And you can hear our live stream at www.wcev1450.com. Or listen to us on the TuneIn app. Just pump, just type in WCV. Uh, if you haven't already done so, folks, keep up with us on social media by following and liking us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. If you have a comment or question you'd like to pose throughout the course of tonight's show, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at 312 750 1178. That's 312-750-1178. Radio Islam, welcome, Radio Islam family, welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. And we've got a, uh, we've got a great program for you tonight. Um, we're going to start off our program uh, reflecting on uh, the United States foreign policy, specifically with, within the uh, South Asia uh, South Asian region. And to do that, we're going to be talking with an expert uh, in this field that's going to allow us to uh, take a, an in-depth look um, at that foreign policy uh, and, to, and to just get a better understanding um, because sometimes we get kind of bogged down with just the things that we see in the national and the, the local news, and we hear about some of these things that are going on, uh, but we really don't know how to process them. So uh, I'm going to start by saying that uh, recently Washington confirmed uh, suspending $255 million of military aid to Pakistan. Uh, the U.S. Press Secretary Sand Sarah Sanders said that the actions being taken against Islamabad are a follow-up to Donald Trump's South Asia policy announced last year. So, I mean, that sounds pretty, um, uh, pretty general, but it doesn't really say too much of anything. So we're going to be talking with um, Junaid Ahmed. Uh, he is a director of the Center for Middle, Middle Eastern Politics and is also an assistant professor at the University of Lahore in Pakistan. And he's also, um, he's also with the uh, International Movement for a Just World. And um, I believe we have him on the line now. Junaid? Yes, hello. Assalamu alaikum. Well, alaikum Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and help us to process some of these things that we've seen in the news uh, to give us some, some context <laughs> <Yeah>. on them. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that, that in addition to the, uh, to the military aid that was cut um, last week, uh, I believe, uh, mm -hmm. there is uh, the discussion that um, there's kind of this pitting uh, one against the other that's going on uh, with the development of, of India and how it has taken on mu much more uh, significance uh, and importance in the United States executing its foreign policy aims uh, in that South Asian region. That's right. Yeah. So that's right. Yeah. Uh, what, what can you tell us? How has that come about and uh, what are the mm -hmm. things that we should be paying attention to? Right. Well, you know, this is uh, it's always uh, fun speaking about this topic because in some ways it's so messy, complicated, and bizarre, mm -hmm. uh, this uh, relationship that's unfolded between the United States and Pakistan 
uh, historically speaking, but especially after uh, uh, September 11th and the U.S. war in Afghanistan. And uh, now uh, your listeners should remember the longest U.S. Uh, war in, in U.S. history mm-hmm. uh, that's been running now for 16 years plus. So, uh, and Pakistan has been central to that, even though every year we get uh, multiple announcements. Of course, this uh, tweet at the new year, you know, I I should say that Pakistanis responded to it uh, in a very strange way. One, of course, uh, profound anger at the hostility embedded in the tweet by Trump, but also a heightened sense of self-importance that, you know, Pakistan was the first thing that Trump uh, thought about <laughs> as the new year came, you know. So, but it, it uh, epitomized the kind of strange relationship uh, that on the one hand, it has always been called uh, since the war in Afghanistan as a major non-NATO ally in the war on terror. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's always the looming threat that overnight it can be demoted and converted to a state sponsor of terrorism right (laughs) so it's this contradictory approach uh to pakistan since then and it and what it demonstrates at the heart of it is that essentially pakistan was was forced from the beginning to be a part of this war on terrorism uh in the specific form that it took which was a very heavy-handed militaristic approach and so one of the pitfalls of the entire scenario and one of uh, the consequences is that not only was the war being waged in Afghanistan, but essentially it was expanded into Pakistan. And that, was very, that has been uh, very dangerous and that has been incredibly consequential in terms of the human toll that it's taken, you know, in terms of, you know, Pakistan has lost about 70,000 lives. Uh, during these 16 years uh, because of uh, the increased uh, amount of terrorism within it, uh, drone attacks, um, all sorts of human, I mean, in terms of just the the social toll, uh, uh, human displacement of millions of people. So it's taken a real toll on Pakistan, and I think that often we, we forget about that. And the second thing that you were talking about, that it's very, very important that while, uh, you know, we, we love to pontificate to Pakistan, you know, it's not doing enough. It's, and now, of course, this very provocative and blatant accusation that it's engaged in lies and deceit, as, uh, as President Trump says. You know, on the other hand, Pakistan's arch nemesis, India, as you just mentioned, mm-hmm. is being showered by largesse by Washington over the, I mean, not just the past, 16 years, but even before that, but especially escalated during this time, you know, in terms of mutual deals, allowing uh, India to develop its nuclear enrichment and energy uh, and and allocate some of that for nuclear weapons, sharing of intelligence, of bases, and what's been a principal concern to Pakistan is basically giving the, the Indians a free hand in Afghanistan to dominate that country uh, politically and economically. 
So, you know, you're talking about a country, you know, Pakistan, which is already on the eastern front with India, the border, you know, border with India and in Kashmir Mm -hmm. is already feels threatened, bullied. Now you're allowing India and Afghanistan to dominate as well. So you you're pretty much going to expect Pakistan to behave the way that it does in terms of making sure that, well, you know, even if it does have links to or doesn't take any hostile action against some of these groups, it's probably a, a very geostrategic reason why it's not doing so. Hmm. Uh, is, is one of those, well, I don't want to say reason, but uh, are one of the uh, factors that are, that are involved is the, mm-hmm. uh, the border that is often referenced, uh, referred to as, uh, I, I think porous is one of the words that I've heard. Um, That's right. In, 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 in describing uh, the border. Um, is that something that is taken into consideration, or do you think that that's, uh, that's talked about enough, or how, mm-hmm. how, how do we see that? Uh, no, I don't think it's uh, emphasized enough, and I'm really glad you highlighted that, because uh, that precisely presents uh, one of the, the, the main difficulties in, uh, in trying to you know, go after groups, which are, you know, oftentimes we, we don't even know who... Uh, you know, the U.S. government is speaking about, or for that matter, even the Pakistani government is unclear about. But the, the problem is that uh, it's not really a problem for the people. They have, of course, uh, the problem began for them is when an artificial boundary was drawn by the British in the late 19th century called the Duran Line, which, listeners should know, separated probably the largest uh, tribe or nation of people in the world that don't have a state today. And that people is known as the Pashtuns, mm. uh, the, the Patans, but the Pashtun people. You know, we're talking about a people of 50 to 60 million people, um, you know, about one-third of which are on the Afghanistan side and two-thirds of on the Pakistan side. So that was an artificial border created, and that, that, that can't, that's not a real border. It's even after... Uh, the border was created even after Pakistan's independence and the creation of Afghanistan as well. It's still been, as you correctly point out, a very porous border. And Pashtuns have gone back and forth, and it, it's been irrelevant to them. And so now, and you can't, you can't put like a barbed wire or a fence. You know, these people who say that have no idea of the terrain mm-hmm. of this region. So you can't really do that uh, in, in these areas. Right. And so and the other thing that's important to point out is that we often uh, hear that, you know, this is uh, the the same kind of uh, fanatical, religious, ideological force known as the Taliban that was there before in the 1990s. This is also very misleading. Mm -hmm. What is called the Taliban today is very, very different. It's basically an umbrella group for what we can call the ethnic Pashtun resistance in Afghanistan. And for the listeners, it's important to remember that the Pashtun population is 60% of the country of Afghanistan, yet are totally marginalized and sidelined from uh, any national uh, government in in Kabul. Therefore, they're going to have their grievances. And beyond them, and and it's important to know, it's not just exclusive, the resistance that emerged to the foreign occupation. It's not just exclusive to the ethnic Pashtuns, because people are you know, tired and fed up of an arrogant, incompetent, corrupt uh, regime in Kabul and its uh, and, and the foreign occupation that engages in, you know, all types of 
uh, heavy-handed tactics, uh, airstrikes, drone attacks, special operations forces. Uh, so all, all these things are taking place. And so what, what, what is done from here, uh, from the United States, from Kabul, from New Delhi, it's a very convenient uh, strategy they have. Any difficulties and problems they have, the scapegoat is Pakistan. You just blame it on Pakistan, right? Mm. Now, uh, when you mentioned um, Kabul and you mentioned the, the lack of, of, of real effective leadership, uh, governmental mm -hmm. leadership, um, what this, the, the, the questions that come to my mind are, uh, in these areas, uh, they're looking for stability, uh, and quite right. often it's so that there can be uh, a, an effective foreign investment um, uh, that can come in. Um, looking at it, and I hope that makes make sense. Um, That's right. Looking, looking at this, does Pakistan see itself um, being kind of put, put in the back seat now because it has... It has developed more ties uh, with with China's economically um, to to the uh, I guess to the chagrin of the United States. Uh, are are right. these things that are starting to come out where Pakistan is uh, is not looking to necessarily to be the proxy of the United States military proxy of the United States in that uh, um, in Afghanistan? Right. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm glad you raised the the issue of China because. Uh, this is the the other part of the story, which is critical to understanding what's going on. Mm. I think that there is no new resurgent threat of of terror, of any uh, threat to the West that's come from Afghanistan or Pakistan, and so there there's no new compulsion for you know whether it's this tweet this new policy towards uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan announced by Trump actually back in August of 2017 this tweet kind of is just uh, um, moving forward with the, the the promises that he made then which was basically that they was gonna punish Pakistan if it didn't uh, cooperate more fully but I think this is this is the the new uh, important aspect of this entire scenario. That is the, the growing influence of China in the region mm -hmm. and specifically its relationship with Pakistan because what that has done, not that it had to unfold this way, but it's because of the behavior uh, of the U.S. in so openly favoring India, uh, downgrading its relationship with Pakistan. It was entirely predictable Mm -hmm. That in very old, stable relationship, it's not anything new, it's an old relationship that Pakistan has had with China, that it would only strengthen those ties in a situation where it felt that not only was it going to suffer economically, but it really genuinely felt there were security uh, threats, perhaps even in the form of military action against it, uh, that were meant to destabilize Pakistan, mm -hmm. potentially break it apart. All of, and, 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 and they were not saying this uh, or they were not thinking this without any merit. They have been, uh, over the past 16 years, plans coming out uh, from Washington think tanks, particularly you know, neocon ones, that have essentially spoken about these types of plans. So, you know, I mean, it's another matter to say, okay, whether any you know, government is going to actually follow through with them. But 
they were well aware, you know, the Pakistani establishment, that this is coming from Washington. They already know that India is hostile to it. They know that the government in Afghanistan is hostile to it. So it was entirely predictable and perhaps natural and logical that it would strengthen its relationship with what it calls its all-weather friend, uh, China. Um, And so they, uh, you know, in terms of not only geostrategically are cooperating, but the major Chinese investment known as CPEC, Chinese-Pakistan Economic Corridor, Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to go from China all the way to the Arabian seaport in Pakistan uh, of Gwadar. That is absolutely essential for China. Right. So it's a very mutually dependent relationship. It's not just like a one-way street. Uh, China would need that port. It's very important for listeners to know in, in, in a situation where things escalate between the U.S. and China and they try to, you know, a blockade, uh, choke points in the South China Sea, the Indian Ocean. That's where the major trade activity takes place, what China is dependent on. If that happens, then China would have uh, access to this port of Gwadar, which at that point would be the lifeline of Chinese economic activity. So we are talking about a very changed situation there. And yes, you're absolutely right. I think that Pakistan at this point feels confident that even if all U.S. aid ended tomorrow, right? Right now we have the suspension of military aid, security aid. Mm -hmm. But if all U.S. aid right now, China also needs Pakistan as much as Pakistan needs China. So their relationship, you know, uh, as I say that if you think about it, Pakistan is probably China's most powerful, uh, closest ally in the world. Uh, The Pakistani military is, of course, no joke. You know, it's particularly in the the Muslim-majority world, it's along with Turkey, uh, the most formidable, powerful military. So we are talking about a very changed geopolitical situation there. uh, I mean, certainly globally as well, but definitely in the region, Mm -hmm. uh, where I think that one of the interests of the United States in just maintaining a presence where otherwise one would be very, uh, you know, bewildered. You know, why would we insist on staying in a country where there's been, you know, miserable, failed occupation for 16 years. Right. And I think the reason for that is not necessarily Afghanistan per se, but it's, it's because of the region itself. You know, neighboring to Afghanistan, you have Iran, then you have Russia, a resurgent Russia, then China, Pakistan. So it's also to keep a check on developments taking place. Uh, and this, uh, I was talking earlier about CPEC. Now, CPEC is one component uh, you may know of the chi- Chinese larger project known as the Belt Road Initiative, mm-hmm. larger Eurasian integration of Central Asia, all the way to Europe, Africa, throughout the Middle East. So these are huge plans, and kind of the U.S. is being left behind from all of it. Yes, I'm, and I'm looking at, um, and I believe uh, this is regarding the 2015 uh, Pakistan and China agreement, uh, the $46 billion uh, project, um, uh, and some of this is supposed to be developed by the end of this year, uh, if what I've uh, read is correct. That's right. Um, so, and I'm and I'm really looking at, and I guess what we should all be paying attention to, uh, those of us who are not who are not experts, but but we we see these uh, stories in the, in the news that there is a changing uh, there's a changing landscape um, uh, that seems to be taking place. 
uh, right in front of us. And I mentioned India as well because uh, India, uh, from what I understand, they have the fastest growing economy uh, in the world um, right now. And, That's right. And as, as these alliances shift and change, um, are you concerned that the United States' uh, continued involvement with or deepening ties with with India that it will it will also relate in uh, it will also result in further uh, military uh, military mm-hmm. aid and military uh, spending. Yeah, th- this is you know the unfortunate part of this, this situation. I, again, you know these things were were not uh, and are not inevitable. Mm-hmm. So these are obviously policy choices for alliances and the nature of those alliances between uh, states. So it's very, very unfortunate the way uh, India, you know, that the developing world, the third world looked at as kind of a leader uh, in in the non-aligned movement and standing up for third world independence and so on, has so firmly anchored itself to uh, what, you know, began under well, at least was announced publicly under the Obama administration, known as the Pivot to Asia policy, which, you know, if you read between the lines, wasn't just about kind of, okay, let's have cooperation and and pay more attention to Asia. It was, uh, or East Asia particularly, it was basically, let's figure out how to contain, isolate, encircle China. I mean, that's essentially what it was about, which was correctly seen as... uh, a growing competitor, rival uh, nation. And so one of the components of that has been, you know, in addition to old allies in the Indo-Pacific region like Australia and Japan, the U.S. understood that India would also be central to this strategy. Huge country, huge military, uh, huge economy, uh, very much increasingly connected with the, with the American economy. So somewhat like Israel... Uh, India would also be recruited, uh, in, at least in, 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 in Asia, uh, to uh, help it contain China. And it's basically jumped on board because India has had its own issues with China as well. But certainly uh, over the past uh, you know, two decades, now it's only heightened those tensions uh, with China because China knows fully well you know, what, what, the, what the Indians are doing and how the U.S. Uh, is being supplied Indian airspace, Indian bases. Indian intelligence about about the Chinese. So, you know, these are these are decisions which are very unfortunate because one could have imagined and can imagine alternative possibilities where, you know, the regional countries cooperate, right, in terms of trying to figure out, uh, you know, greater integration amongst themselves, what the Chinese are trying to do with all of the countries of the region, mind you. The only exception is, is India because it is so uh, interlocked with the American project right now to basically contain China. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, and yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. This is, this can potentially be a very dangerous situation. So while you have all of these countries, we have to remember who are nuclear armed, go right. through the list, right? You know, Pakistan, India, neighboring countries, and China, another nuclear power, Russia, you have the Korean crisis, you know. So you have them all nuclear armed. But it's important for listeners to remember things really get, you know, people in the region really get, uh, you know, get on the edge 
when the United States starts to issue these types of statements because of its behavior uh, and its regional reordering that it engages in, that kind of uh, you know messes with the balance of power in the region that then puts people over the edge in terms of you know what's going to happen next. Hmm. Okay, uh, Janae, do you have? Is there a summation or anything? Like I said, uh, the Radio Slime listeners may or may not be, you know, really acutely aware of what's going on. Could you give us uh, kind of a, a one-minute um, sure. kind of summation? Yeah, because we're going to have to um, uh, go to break and, uh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that the most important part of uh, this story is, uh, is actually to contextualize it uh, as part of a broader picture of what's going on in the world. And I think that that is what should be welcome. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a growing multipolar world, that we are moving beyond uh, the scenario. Uh, I mean, whether it was after the Cold War, even during the Cold War, where we had basically one superpower, one unipolar hegemonic power, that is the United States, Mm -hmm. uh, that was calling the shots everywhere, that was able to dominate so easily and dictate to others what to do, uh, and, you know, whether it's, you know, and, and in that light, Pakistan, along with another interesting, you know, Muslim-majority country, Turkey, mm -hmm. you know, these countries are very interesting to follow developments uh, in, in them because throughout the Cold War, you know, Turkey, of course, being a NATO member, they essentially followed, you know, what 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 the United States sold them to. We don't see that anymore. So forget about the big countries, China and, uh, and Russia, which are no longer taking, even you can call mid-level, mid-tier countries like a Pakistan, a Turkey, or an Iran. You know, they're not even following orders anymore. What this points to is a very changed international scenario in which listeners should, see, should welcome the fact that we have a growing multipolar world but also recognize that this is becoming very, very difficult for planners in Washington to come to terms with, to consider themselves just one power amongst equals. You know, even if, right. you know, they're larger and, and more powerful country, but one amongst equals, and then come to the table to try to resolve diplomatically and politically conflicts. You know, I often say, and I'll wrap up with this, that what we're seeing today in, in Pakistan and Afghanistan is almost like a Syria redux. In Syria, there was a bloody civil war. And at the end of the day, Turkey just got together with the Iranians and the Russians to try to figure out some type of post-war settlement. You know, wherever that's going, hopefully some stability and peace. And what they're afraid of in Afghanistan is something similar. The regional powers come together to, to try to put together a solution which has next to no input from, from, from the United States. So it's, right. it's trying to come to terms, which is very difficult from its growing, uh, you know, decline in, in world affairs. And that's what produces then these kind of very anxious, paranoid tweets right. <laughs> at times from the White House. Well, thank you so much, Janae, for giving us some perspective and, and uh, sharing your expertise with us. Um, hope that we can talk with you again in the near future. Um, uh, absolutely. It was my pleasure. All right. Thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu All right, Radio Sound family, we were speaking with Junaid Ahmed. Um, he is the uh, director of the Center for Middle Eastern Politics and assistant professor at the University of Lahore in Pakistan.